What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Greetings, listeners, and welcome back to the Age of Jackson podcast. I am your host, Daniel Golotta, PhD student in American Religious History. And today on the podcast, we have a special... I guess you could say emergency, non-emergency episode. Uh, I don't have a book episode like I normally do, interviewing a guest with a new book. Basically, all the guests I've had lined up and the content I've had planned has kind of been thrown into chaos, like many of our lives have been with the outbreak of uh, the coronavirus. Um, People have had to cancel and reschedule. So not to drive you not to um, deprive my wonderful listeners of content, I enlisted the help of uh, my friend and friend of America, uh, my colleague, um, former guest, Craig Bruce Smith, author of American Honor. Craig, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thanks. I, I, friend of America, that's a new title. Uh, yeah, you, know, be... you, you like that? Oh, I do. I do. Happy to be back for uh, my third time. Uh, thereby passing David Head and Mark Cheatham yet again. So defaults, you know. But I, I mean, they could be in a special category, though. Most most appearances with books, and you could just be most appearances in general. H- however you want to count it, I, I'm ahead. No. Okay, all right. <laughs> it's all it's all in good fun, listeners. Well, Craig, um, I guess we'll, you know, we'll start with a little ground covering. How are you doing at the moment? How, um, how's everything happening in your neck of the woods? Because you moved recently with a new job. Yes, I am now uh, assistant professor of military history at the U.S. Army School of Advanced Military Studies, which is uh, under the uh, Army Command and General Staff College, which is located Fort Leavenworth. Uh, which is in the Kansas City area on the on the Kansas side. Um, so uh, being in the Midwest, um, we're sort of delayed as the uh, COVID-19 moves in from both coasts. Um, so our, our bars and restaurants and everything else and schools really only closed at the beginning of this week. Um, so uh, uh, things are starting to pick up. Um, and I've got a little girl at home. Um, so my wife and I are busy working full time while taking care of her. Well, good stuff. Um, yeah, uh, San Francisco has been under pretty hard crackdown in the last 48 hours. So pretty much everything non-essential has been closed, um, or has had its hours of, operation seriously limited so i'm currently sitting at home nursing a glass of jameson and if i'm not reading for my exams which i will admit has become harder in the last couple of days i'm playing video games watching movies and just catching up on articles so yeah well the first two things sound good you should leave off the articles you got enough to worry about uh um speaking of catching up on things Um, A lot of uh, news outlets and other intellectual outlets online have been offering their opinion on books and movies and TV shows that you could watch during this time. Uh, You know, we might be under this for quite some time, Uh, you know, uh, being forced to stay inside and curl up with a good book. So, Craig, I thought we would have a little bit of back and forth. Uh, Let's go one after another. Um, What... If you're, I mean, I guess maybe not desert island reading, but, uh, you know, what is, what is a good book that you think people, with the opportunity now to catch up, what's a good book they should catch up on? So what's my locked in the house uh, reading list? Um, uh, it depends, depends what you like, but since we're, we're both historians, uh, I'll, I'll go with, with history. Um, so two of my favorites 
um, are, are history books of ridiculously high academic quality, but also read like novels. Um, they're two books that are begging to have movies made about them. And that, uh, they're both by David Hackett Fisher, who I admit was my advisor in graduate school. Um, but the two books are Paul Revere's ride and Washington's crossing and how, these both these books have not been turned into feature films. I, I am still surprised. Um, one follows uh, obviously Paul Revere, but the other sort of riders in the from the occupation of Boston by the British uh, through the the warnings of uh, of a mission to Lexington and Concord. Um, and then the the retreat back to Boston and Washington's crossing from uh, the New York campaigns during the revolution uh, through the famed Washington's crossing of the Delaware on Christmas 1776. And then the, the campaigns immediately uh, the campaign immediately following that um, Paul Revere's ride actually was was optioned on, on multiple occasions. It came very, very close to being made. It was being produced by. The uh, same company that did the film uh, Conspirators about the Lincoln assassination um, some years ago. Uh, so it was very close to being made, but ultimately uh, it was not. But I think both of those should be made. Say, directed by Robert Redford. Believe it or not. I probably knew that at one point. Yeah, uh, it's got James McAvoy, Robin Wright. It's not. A, it's actually not a bad film. It's it. It didn't do terribly well at the box office, unfortunately. Yeah, the producers of that one were very uh, concerned about historical accuracy. Um, so, just saying, and you know, you have Alexis Bledel, who's best known as Rory Gilmore. Um, so, I mean. I thought it was good. I was looking forward to seeing the Paul Revere. They were also trying to make a John Brown um, film as well. And there was a poll at one point. Who, which one should be made next, Paul Revere or John Brown? I think John Brown won the poll. I don't recall. Well, there is a John Brown miniseries in the works with uh, Ethan Hawke uh, playing John Brown. So we'll get a taste of it. Um, so who do you want Russell Crowe to play? Because I know you are so in the can for Russell Crowe. It's not even funny at this point. Well, we all know Russell Crowe would be in one of these. Um, and, and that's just, if, not if it because... was produced by Craig Bruce Smith. Well, of course. And and that's not just because he, he's allowed me to sign my book, strength and honor. Um, I actually suggested him uh, years ago when the when the film looked like it was close to being made, um, but I think Russell Crowe would be a great Paul Revere. Uh, if you're looking for straight looks, it's clearly Jack Black, and I do think Jack Black, though he's a comedic actor, I think comedic actors translate very well to drama. Um, so I think you at the very least have to screen test him, uh, but I'd lean Russell Crowe. I just, I just don't yeah. think Black's got the acting chops, to be frank. He's never been given the opportunity. If you saw the movie The Holiday, he's great in it. Yes, he, it's a comedic. He is, he is good in that movie, yes. I'm just saying, give the guy a shot. Uh, who would you have play Washington? Uh, my pick would be, uh, well, my all-time pick, uh, he's dead. Uh, so it'd be difficult to do. It'd be Charlton Heston. I think that would be spot on. If if there was a Washington film made in the, the 50s or 60s, I think it's Heston. Um, today, I go Hugh Jackman. I, 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 we've had this conversation before, and I just don't, I just don't see see it for Washington. I just don't see Jackman for Washington. I'm sorry. Well, well, your your previous complaints have been that he's an Australian, and and I don't think that matters. The idea is Washington's a global figure. This showcases how international he is. And at the same point, Daniel Day Lewis played Lincoln. Doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's Daniel Day Lewis, though. Um, I've been thinking about this. You know who I think would play a good senior Washington? Who? My, Michael Douglas. 
I don't see it. You don't see it? I, I don't. Well, I don't. I just. I don't feel like he's got the stature. Really? Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um. Well, that lead. Well, that leads uh, me to. I suppose I should recommend a book, shouldn't I? Uh, probably. Well, I've been thinking about this, and you know what? If you've got time on your hands, there's really no excuse that you could finally sink your teeth into Daniel Walker Howe's What Have Got Wrought or Sean Lewentz's Rise of American Democracy. These books are huge. They are impressive. They are detailed. They are sweeping histories of a time period that I love, that I devote this podcast to. And you've got all the time in the world now. And if you can read both of them back to back, you will get such an amazing education about the Jacksonian period, even though Daniel Walker Howe doesn't hate, hates that term. And that in itself is another reason why it'd be great to read these books back to back, because you can really start to see if you're uninitiated, you can get initiated in these historiographic battles over um, who are the good guys, the Democrats or the Whigs. Um, how democratic was the age of Jackson? Um, was the bank war a good idea or a bad idea? All that you can get into these, into the weeds of scholarly nerd, nerd debates. So then you get to see the WWE, uh, faction elements within academia. It's but true. No t-shirts no or entrance music, unfortunately. I, I think we need entrance music um, at conferences sometimes. Um, I think I tweeted um, last year what people would want their entrance music to be. Uh, but uh, there there is a faction lanyards now with team footnote and team uh, endnote. Uh, so you see people, and also people tweet it, I think, as well. People tweet uh, hashtag team footnote, hashtag team endnote. Uh, I still think I, I'd rather have the entrance music. Besides, endnotes are better. I I think time and place. I think endnotes are better for monographs, and I think footnotes are better for articles. That makes perfect sense to me. Okay, um, Craig, uh, we were asked, um, I was asked, um, what I think is the best Jackson biography. Um, so while I quickly think about that answer, um, I'm going to ask you, what do you think is the best Washington biography? Well, there, there, there are many. And, and you're you know, working on one as well. Yes, except mine's a global biography. So it's completely different. You're, um, so, hip. you're so hip. <laughs> um, so uh, the, there are Washington biographies, you know, dating back to the 19th century. And, and there are some that are multiple volumes. And there are some that, you know, there are some that are great for different things. Like if you're looking for... Um, you know, to to get at sort of the myth of Washington or, or, or things like that. Uh, if you're going for a single volume, I would go Ron Chernell's uh, Washington, uh, which he won the Pulitzer Prize for. Um, there there are other good ones, uh, and I know there's some. There is certainly some debate uh, within the academic community because Chernow is a journalist. Um, uh, also author of the Hamilton biography turned Broadway musical. Um, but I just think it's, it's well-written. It has clear research. Uh, it gets into the key elements of, of Washington's life. At the same time, it delves into sort of the minutia. It's a big book. Um, again, one you could certainly read while self-quarantining or social distancing or whatever other terms you want to use hiding in your basement. Um, that would be the one I'd recommend. Um, and it's the one, if I said, if you were going to read one book on, on one biography in Washington, I, I would say it's that one. Well, thinking about a Jackson answer, I've, I've, been thinking about this the one i get asked about the most is american lion because it won the pulitzer prize not too long ago and honestly i would say if you're if if you're if you're a lay person and you're only ever going to read one biography of jackson american lion is not bad it's not perfect it's got its problems 
but I I think it's it's so well written and it's enjoyable and I think if you've only ever heard terrible Jackson stuff, it's a good counterbalance. If you've only ever heard great stuff about Jackson, then I would say um, check out the um, Andrew Bernstein's The Passions of Andrew Jackson. Even though I have big problems with that book, it's probably the best negative Jackson book around. Um, but honestly, I think if I'm only going to recommend one, I would probably say check out Mark Cheatham's Andrew Jackson Southerner. I think it's highly informative, really well written, but it's also got a really interesting scholarly intervention where not only does Cheatham tell you all about Jackson's life and presidency um, and give you great sort of basic bare bone details. It also has a really interesting thrust understanding Andrew Jackson as a southerner, a man culturated and um, born into southern culture, the, the world of the south, southern manners, southern honor, um, southern slavery. So it's a, it's a really interesting counterweight to the sort of Western idea of Jackson as a rough and tumble frontiersman from the West. Um, it's a, it's, it's a kind of interesting myth busting book. That's also really informative and just well read, but if you want to cradle to grave one, just pick up Robert Remini. I mean, if you've got nothing but time in your hand, Remini's free volumes will keep you. I mean, that, that free volume series will keep you reading until, you know, the end of the year. They're so big, but yeah. Can, can I tell a, a, a quick John Meacham story? Oh, sure. So uh, I brought a class uh, when I was teaching um, uh, at my old school, William Woods, to to see Meacham uh, speak. He was actually speaking on, on Churchill. And, and he was kind enough. He after, after the talk, he took a picture with all the students I brought. And he was uh, he was so gracious to them. And then you mentioned about, um, you know, some of the. Again, like like Chernow, the some of the the debate between academic historians and, and, and popular historians, but Meacham's in on the joke, and so I, I got a book signed by him, and you know he knew he you know he found out who I was because I brought the class, and he actually inscribed the book to a real historian, which I thought oh, was hysterical. That's very funny. That's very funny. Um. I mean, I'm happy to tell, listen, you know, Meacham is one of the, well, Meacham himself didn't respond. His agent um, said that uh, he was too busy to come on to my, quote, little podcast, end quote. So, oh, well. I think you've got one of the best history podcasts out there, Daniel, so. Oh, thank you. Checks in the mail, Craig. Um, all right. Shall we tackle another question or would you like to recommend more books? Um, I, I'm just going to throw out uh, some other ones, just. Uh, I just do a quick running list since we've got, we're all got plenty of time. Um, sure. books I've mentioned on, 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 on another occasion were, uh, Joanne Freeman's affairs of honor, Caroline Cox's proper, uh, sense of honor and Judith von Buskirk's, um, generous enemies. These are books that were really influential in, in, in my writing. Um, but for some new innovative, um, books that are fairly recent, uh, there's a few I'd recommend. Uh, it's by Zara and uh, If I if I mess up your name, Zara, I apologize. Uh, a Portrait of a Woman in Silk, which looks at uh, 18th century portrait and sort of the material culture into what went around cultivating this image and what is the woman wearing and following, cherishing it all throughout the Atlantic world. Um, uh, David Preston's Braddock's Defeat, basically anything in the Oxford uh, Pivotal Moment series. Um, looking at you know french indian war um i just finished serena zabin's fantastic new book on the boston massacre which really looks at the lives behind the people involved and shows the the british military was really intertwined with the civilians in boston did you review that for uh, somewhere remind me i i did i reviewed that for Hold on, let me think. Who did I review that for? The New Criterion. I think that's right. Um, but yeah, I gave that rave reviews. I think you're going to see that one as a finalist with George Washington Book Prize. Um, some others. Uh, Mary Thompson's new book on on Washington and slavery. Mary Thompson is, is probably uh, 
the top or certainly one of the top Washington scholars out there. And it's probably the definitive word on, on Washington and slavery. Um, also, David Head uh, came out with a new book on the Newburgh Conspiracy, A Crisis of Peace. And he's really sort of pushing back on on, on older scholarship and suggesting that, well, maybe this wasn't a conspiracy, though still important. And that's written for a really general audience. So you can lay back on the couch and enjoy a rollicking good story with good scholarship. Um, I guess for me, I would really recommend, uh, you know, naturally I'm going to recommend some more religiously bent books. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't recommend my supervisor's book, Damnation. Everything you've ever wanted to know about the image of hell in America. Um, it's fantastic. Uh, Catherine Jim Lum's uh, Damnation. It's all about how the image of hell was used in American politics, um, in American daily life, in the early Republic and onto the verge of the Civil War how abolitionists would invoke hell um, to invoke, you know, to damn those who practice slavery. But even more interesting that though that there were some people who even argued that if they didn't practice slavery, they would be condemned to hell as well. So really interesting image of hell. Rebecca's Revival, fantastic book about, you know, one of the founding figures who we don't really know that much about um, in the birth of black Christianity in the Americas. Fantastic book. Um, I've been doing a lot of research on the Creek War at the moment, and I re- I just finished a really interesting book um, called Tennesseans at War, and it's all about um, Andrew Jackson and his lieutenants. And what's great about the book is that it goes beyond the Jackson show and really focuses on some of the side characters who many of whom become big figures later in life. Um, speaking, seeing as you invoked Gordon Wood, um, oh, wait, we, you didn't invoke Gordon Wood on this. Uh, listeners, our ruse has been, you know, we tried to record earlier, but kept having technical difficulties. Um, so uh, on the previous recording, Craig said people should read uh, Gordon Wood's, um, uh, oh, what, uh, the revolutionary um oh radicalism radicalism um and thinking of radicalism uh i i'm currently working on a review of c bradley thompson's um america's revolutionary mind um and craig wrote a review of that as well so we're both going to be reviewing it um further solidifying um our incestuous friendship um I mean, hell, if you're going to read Lewentz and how, you might as well read Sellers' Market Revolution. Uh, yeah, I just... And you know what? If you've got time to kill, read, read uh, Schlesinger. Um, oh, Nancy Cott's Bonds of, Bonds of Womanhood, I finished reading again recently. And that's one of those books I've forgotten how good it was. So rereading that was a real treat. So basically the takeaway is read everything. Read everything, listeners. Although yep. we did we did get a good question. Um, about reading that I think we should turn to now. Uh, this question comes from Robert, uh, from Dr. Robert Green, who asked us, what's our favorite history book outside of our specialty? Um, I'm going to say not oh. just one, but um, my fate, I have a few, uh, Robert, uh, if I can call you Robert. Um, I really enjoyed reading um, the coming of the story. Um, Oh boy, now now I'm blanking on its name. I, Before the storm, um, the book on Gary Barry Goldwater. Um, uh, uh, yeah, Before the storm, Barry Goldwater, and the unmaking of the American consensus. It was this complete as an Australian who only really knew the '60s through movies like Hippies and stuff like that. Hippies and free love and sex, drugs, and, and rock and roll. This book completely turned my head upside down about what America was like in the late fifties, early sixties. And it really does a great job helping understand paving the way to the rise of Reagan. Um, it's really, it, it does. It's a really well-written book. It's really enjoyable. And if you're an audiobook guy, it is the best audiobook performance I think I've ever listened to. Um, the, 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 the listener, um, the the speaker does different accents, um, speaks really clearly. Um, it, it's just, it's a wonderful read. I really enjoyed it. 
Um, yeah, so I think I think it's probably my favorite. Although being a Schlesinger fanboy, and again, I'm kind of, my secret obsession um, outside of the Jackson. Like, I I think I'm clearly just a presidential historian in disguise. Um, but I have a soft spot for the Kennedys, as you know, Craig. And um, I Schlesinger's One Thousand Days, his um, intimate look at the Kennedy administration from the inside, is a really it's an interesting thing about, you know, it's kind of part journalism, part history, part historiography. It, it won the Pulitzer Prize, his second Pulitzer Prize. Um, so yeah, it's, if you're into the Kennedys, it's, it's a, it's a really fascinating look in, inside the Kennedy administration. I mean, I've been, I've been thinking about this. I mean, this is a really, this is a, this is a great question. Um, and I've taught, I've taught so many a variety of classes. I've taught global history. I've taught American history. Um, so if we're saying outside of my area being American, sort of revolution, colonial, um, I'll, I'll throw this out there. I'll give you a an American one, sort of outside of uh, my my area. Now, maybe it's probably. So many. I, mean, I lean towards maybe James McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom. Um, I really like uh, Amy Greenberg's Manifest Manhood, um, which are sort of touching on on the era. Um, some classics just that are just interesting. Um, the Invention of Tradition, which is a book that looks at like how some of the traditions we think of um, are actually later creations. Um, and for some, for a fun sort of uh, read, um, I haven't touched it in a while, but I'm, I'm leaning towards fun. How the Scots invented the world, or how the Scots invented the modern world, basically sort of tracing um, uh, lots of sort of developments of modernity back to sort of uh, enlightened Scottish ideas, etc. Um, but that that's just off the top of my head, and this is a great question. And had I known that was coming, I prob maybe I would have thought a bit more deeply. But just those are those are just right off the top of my head. Well, let me follow that question with an easier one. Alex F. would like to know how we got interested in our particular time periods. Uh, so I'll, I'll let you answer that one first, Craig. How did you get interested in revolutionary colonial history? You know, again, I, that's probably a question I get asked a lot. And it just was something I was always interested in, I guess, because uh, I was always interested in, in history in, in school and going to school in America. It's basically always taught and i just always was interested in you know the sort of the creation of things origins um and i think that's probably what drew me to it that the things weren't set i always like sort of looking at, at topics where things um aren't firmly established yet so i think that's probably what, what drew me to the revolutionary era So you got you got to join in and ask me the question, Craig. Oh, I do. Okay. So, what got you interested in? Well, uh, being a well, a formerly an Australian or now a dual Australian uh, American, uh, what got you interested in American history first of all, and secondly, what got you interested in Andrew Jackson aside from the twenty dollar bill? Well, that's that's a great question, Craig. Uh, no, thank you, Alex, for asking this question because, yeah, as Craig points out, being of Australian birth, we don't really learn a lot of American history um, in high school. The only American history that we really learned was kind of the War on Terror and uh, civil rights, um, and that was a. I think we spent like one day on the American Revolution, and it was basically like it was a thing that happened. Um, and when I was a teenager, the Patriot had just come out. So like, really like that was the extent of American history. Um, honestly, and I started, Patriot is a very underrated movie. You know I'll what? I, I, you know what? It's a fun, I think it's, it's a fine movie. It's terrible history. 
we can all agree it's a it's it's a terrible historical movie but you know what is that as a as a story it's not that bad agreed so sorry to cut you off but I, no I, no no I... it's fine um uh what got me into american history was i just started dating an american girl who's now my wife um i wanted to learn more about her world and you know i just started I, I yeah i don't know if this was great dating advice or a great a great dating tactic but i went to my local used bookstore and i went to the small american history section and i picked up dave mccullough i picked up mark cheat uh john um john meacham i picked yeah basically all the like bestsellers ron Shuro. I read the Washington biography. I read the Lincoln biographies. I read Battle Cry Free. And I, I, I got to admit, I got hooked. I really got hooked on American history. Um, at that time in my life, I was an ancient history historian studying biblical history. And when you're studying the ancient world, there's really only a handful of sources that are written. And you're really relying on scraps. Um, and in, in American history, in modern history, there was just an embarrassment of riches. So I think that like was kind of the thing that pulled me over. As for Jackson, my gateway drug to Jackson was Joseph Smith, the Mormon prophet, where I was working on my on I was working on my thesis at Yale and um, David Holland at Harvard challenged me to think bigger about my project. I was working on Joseph Smith running for president in 1844 and he just said, like, get out of Nauvoo and stop navel-gazing. And I just thought about that. And I was like, well, why does Joseph even think he can run for president? And basically everything I was coming across was this phrase, Jacksonian democracy. And I was like, well, what's that? And I, that the once I went down that rabbit hole, I just was fascinated that I could read so many books that had so many differing opinions about the man, the myth, the legend, the movement. Was it even a movement? The phenomenon of Jacksonian democracy. Was it a thing? Like I, I, I was just hooked. All right. Well, uh, we have a fun question um, from former crown champion, David Head of um, how many guests have been on the podcast. Uh, David Head would like to know if we have a favorite history-themed children's book or if there are any Disney or children's movies that are interesting from an historical perspective that we would Oh, I, I, please, please let me jump in here. Um, being the asking, father of a two-year-old. Yes, that's probably yeah, a better I, question. I have, I have many thoughts on this. Um, so uh, my daughter loves George Washington. And she's two years old. By the time she turned two, she could literally say George Washington. And I promise I didn't force this on her. Uh, I brought her back a George Washington doll from Mount Vernon. It's one of her favorite toys. Um, uh, she's got she's got several Washington books. Uh, one of her well, she's got a little golden book. Uh, about George Washington that she, she loves. Uh, and it actually uh, cites uh, Mary Thompson and Mount Vernon and the uh, Washington Library um, in the in the little sort of brief, not an intro or a footnote, just sort of a note somewhere. Um, but she's got two books that she legitimately just loves. Um, one of them is a book. It's by it's, it's actually by Ken Burns. It's called Grover Cleveland Again, and it's the brief sort of lives of the presidents. Um, and I can't even tell you how many times uh, we we went through that at bedtime. And she's got a little board book um, that was uh, just called This Little President. And it's just a quick little again sort of presidential history um, for Disney. Um, I've actually taught using Pocahontas in class. And why did I do that? Not for its historical accuracy, but because this is what often what students would know about the Jamestown story and John Smith and Pocahontas. And we'd literally dissect the movie fact, fiction. 
And there's one song towards the end of uh, the film where it's sort of juxtaposed between the natives and the colonists. And it's, it's dealing with these, this ideas of uh, savagery and civility. And we, we talked about sort of varying interpretations of culture and how that was really Disney got it right in sentiment for that, for that, for that song, if not in historical accuracy. Um, so Disney princesses, children's books what else was on the question oh that was yeah that was the you you got it basically um for me like i i you know i don't have kids yet and um for uh you know craig's daughter is my goddaughter so um i'm sending her a little book um on saint francis for easter so maybe saint francis can supplant um george washington i doubt it but i'll try um but you uh, better you better send a doll then with with the book or else she's got no shot. Uh, well, fair enough. Um, and the the funny thing is, uh, you and I became friends because of your podcast. Well, kind of. We we well, we kind of, yeah. We we met at AHA. Well, we became friends because you shamelessly wanted to get on the podcast to self promote your book. But then we found out we had a lot in common and um, our shared love of uh, menswear. I, I I think it was menswear, funnily enough, that really got us befriended. Pro- you know, that's, that, that's, pro- that's probably true. But you'll, re- you'll recall I was first on to talk- do a History of History episode about that's Southern true. Honor. So I did, that, I did that first and we, we recorded that one long ahead. Did I want to promote my book? Absolutely, we, I did, but I was at least a little sneaky about it. Okay, well, I'm gl- I'm glad our friendship isn't completely based on on lies. But uh, um, no, uh, honestly, for, for if you've got older kids, if you've got someone who is nine or ten or or an early teenager, a very powerful book I read when I was a boy was the book I Am David. And it's a book about the Holocaust. Well, it's it's a Jewish boy named David. And even though I've basically said this, what's fascinating is that it's the Holocaust from the perspective of a child, of a young boy, who escapes from a concentration camp. But what's fascinating is that he doesn't really know what's going on. Um, and so much of the book is through a child's perspective. And I, as a 10 year old reading this book, I had a vague idea what the Holocaust was. And I vaguely knew who the Nazis were. They were the bad guys in Indiana Jones, but then like really seriously in history class, they were like, you know, terrible people. um, And they hated Jews for some reason. So reading this book from this perspective, of someone who was my age, like another 10-year-old boy escaping a concentration camp, just was a really eye-opening experience. And he goes on adventure in, well, misadventure in Europe. Um, and there's this really powerful scene where he takes a, a warm bath for the first time. He can even remember having a warm bath. Um, it's it's very powerful. They turned it into a movie a couple of years ago, which I've never seen, but... If you've got older kids, I Am David was a very powerful book for me as a kid. Um, so I would highly recommend that. Um, as for animated movies or Disney movies with a historical perspective, um, honestly, I, I I don't really know. I don't really know what to... I think the Pocahontas Ants is pretty, pretty darn good. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. You, you'll, you'll learn... Yes, our time will come. My wife, our time will come. Um, okay, uh, another question. Oh, Tyler Curtis would like to know. Uh, this is probably more for me, but I would get you your opinion on this. John Quincy Adams didn't become a vocal abolitionist until his time in Congress. Even then, just to jump in there, Tyler, I don't know if I would call him a vocal abolitionist. I'd say he'd become more fiercely anti-slavery, but anyway... If he had been re-elected, ooh, a counterfactual question. If he had been elected in 1828 for a second term, would he ever made a cause for abolition? 
or would his status as a national leader, as president, forced him to be more moderate? Ooh, good question. Counterfactual. What do you think, Craig? Well, I think Andrew Jackson would have gone into a complete rage and who knows what happens after that if, if uh, old JQA wins uh, again. I think there'd be, there'd be accusations beyond corrupt bargains. Um, that's a really interesting one. I mean, I don't – counterfactuals are, are, are fun and they're also troubling. Um, does he push for – for constitutionally ending slavery at that moment, I don't know. I um, highly, I personally, highly yeah, I, yeah, I, I can't see it. I mean, would it be more vocal potentially, especially in his second, you know, term, perhaps. But um, if you're looking at the the movement of politics during the antebellum era, it's it's greatly about. Um, compromise and and preventing any sort of hostility so i i my sense is no he he sort of maintains the status quo maybe speaking out a bit more or um supporting policies perhaps at you know the state level or or of the northern states more generally the thing i would point out is that we have a very powerful image of the presidency um, and that's much more of a modern phenomenon. Um, the president of the 19th century is not the president of today. So I, first of all, I would point that out. Um, the second thing, people knew John Quincy Adams was um, anti-slavery. Um, and what's interesting, in his diary in the 1830s, uh, he is becoming far more um, hostile to slavery privately. I highly doubt that spills over too much into his public life. Um, he always, uh, he, he really seems to have, you know, look at the debates in the Missouri compromise where he's very open that he's opposed to slavery, but he does not want to tamper with, um, Southern rights and States rights and things like that. So I highly doubt now the South Carolina crisis with a John Quincy Adams presidency is an interesting counterfactual to think as well. Um, I think he would definitely not, I think he would have been very similar to Jackson where he would not have stood down um, for the sake of the union. I, I think he would have stood up to South Carolina as well. Would but have the, the would the rest of the South been emboldened with, um, with a far more anti-slavery president? That's a that's a more tough question. Oh no, uh, that's the thing. Uh, you know, I'm not saying he doesn't stand up to South Carolina, but does it escalate? Does the yes, fact that it's, that, yeah, it's Andrew yeah. Jackson, Southerner, military, uh, you know, general who's fellow slaveholder, yeah, who's invaded Florida and hanged foreign citizens? When he says he's going to invade, you kind of have to believe him, right? If yeah. John Quincy Adams says it. Well, that are like does does it become even more hostile to slavery? Because so much yeah. of this, the nullification stuff is very it's kind of cloak and dagger that it's about slavery. Um, clearly, slavery is on their mind, but some of them say it explicitly, some of them don't. With John Quincy Adams at the helm, I wonder if that becomes far more explicit. But yeah. but what you said also about you know the, the changing power of the presidency, I think it was one of your other get, guests was H. W. Brands who was talking about how you know the power residing in the Senate, and he was talking about his book Air, Air, yes, uh, yes, Heirs yes. of the Founders. I think that's right. Okay, so um, a question I got asked by Fred was, um, I was hoping to find out if you've come across what Andrew Jackson read during his life. Did he have any favorite books or authors? That's a great question. Um, Jackson was definitely not a voracious book reader. Um, uh, he did not, he wasn't a Thomas Jefferson, but I can tell you what he did consume. He read a ton of newspapers. Jackson consumed new media as it was, you could say back then. Um, 
like nobody else before him. So Jackson's not sitting there reading Cicero. He's sitting there reading newspaper after newspaper. He loved newspapers. Probably because he loved the game, I think. Um, and he kind of loved the gossip. Um, and uh, yeah, he consumed a lot of newspapers. Um, what about you, Craig? What did, what did Washington like to read? So that's a really, it's, it's interesting that there's a, a book that came out a few years ago uh, on this exact topic. It's by Kevin Hayes, and it's called George Washington, A Life in Books. And it won the George Washington Book Prize, which is awarded um, for the best book in sort of early America, revolutionary era. Um, so Washington often doesn't get credit for, for being as well-read as he, as he was. He's not on the Benjamin Franklin level or, or the Jefferson level, but he is very well-read. Uh, he had what he called the defective education um, as a youth, so didn't go to school in England like his older half-brothers, sort of local maybe schoolhouse tutors, uh, but he was very well-read uh, in the classics. Uh, he only read he only spoke and read in English, though, so it did limit, you know, uh, what he was able to read. But he did have some favorite works, included um, Joseph Addison's The Spectator, which was sort of um, like a gentleman's magazine. His favorite book was a novel, uh, Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. And he also loved plays, particularly Cato, which is, is among other things about civic virtue set in a, a classical era. But he has an immense library uh, with all sorts of, 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 of tracks of historical, um, classical um, uh, fiction. And even towards the end of his life, he started reading about uh, anti-slavery um, or abolitionist texts. Uh, but his library – is still you can still use his exact library today it's split between uh, the george washington library at mount vernon but the bulk of the volumes can be found at the boston athenaeum and so you can actually go there and read washington's library and you know see his his he doesn't annotate much but occasionally he does but you you can actually read the books that he read People know that we are fashion aficionados, um, and Craig and I, knowledgeable gurus of fashion advice, much like the scenes from American Psycho where um, Patrick Bateman and his colleagues debate if it's appropriate to wear um, loafers with a suit. Um, so, we have a question um, from Jonathan Den Hardhog. What is the best starter dress watch, and what do we make of the smart dress watch? Craig. Um, I know you're not as big into horology as I am, but do you have an answer? Um, I have lots of answers. I, so, yeah. Oh, I'm I'm sure you do, and I defer to you on all things watches. What's interesting is that um, that an article came out a while ago in the Wall Street Journal about how James Bond killed the dress watch because technically a dress watch, by traditional standards, is a fit very thin, fits under a cuff time only plain face watch but ever since sean connery wore a rolex submariner and every um you know a diver's watch which at the time you know like we it was only i think only 38 mils at the time which today is a pretty medium-sized watch but at the time was a huge you know tool watch as they call it um, and then ever since then roger moore wearing a rolex submariner as well uh, Pierce Brosnan wearing an Amiga Seedmaster, Bond basically in a tuxedo wearing a tool watch has basically helped for men anyway kill the sort of elegant slim dress watch. Um, as someone who used to sell watches, I can tell you I sold far more aviation watches and dive watches and racing watches than I ever sold quote-unquote classic dress watches. Um, so the rules have kind of changed. Um I myself also have a James Bond watch. Um, 
I wear the Omega Seamaster Planet Ocean, the one worn by Daniel Craig in Skyfall. So Craig and I are connected there as well with our mutual appreciation of James Bond and his watches. I love this watch. What's interesting, though, is that it's a terrible dress watch. It does not fit under some of my cuffs for dress searches. So, yeah, so now I find myself craving a sort of classic dress watch. So, yeah. So what, what you what you can do though if you if you're getting custom shirts there are some that let you uh make the cuff on the watch hand slightly larger and that's what yes, I've done yeah. while we're in the omega. Well it, it it's just an interesting um yeah uh exactly. Um although your omega is has a much more slimmer profile than mine. Um but um so the thing I would say honestly I think if you've got 300 bucks to spend, and I know $300 is not a lot of money for some watch collectors, and for some normal people, $300 is a ton of money to spend on a watch. The best bang for buck is the Seiko Saab, S-A-R-B. It is by far the... Seiko just makes amazing watches, period, for bang for buck. But the Seiko Saab is an amazing quality dress watch. If you've got a little bit more money, um, I think Craig's right. Um, a Frederick Constant isn't bad. A Raymond Wheel is also pretty good. Um, if you really want to enter a whole different category, um, Nomos, a German company, make amazing value. Um, but yeah but and i could go on you know a rolex explorer i think is the perfect all-rounder sort of watch because of its slim profile but kind of sporty aesthetic i think it is the perfect one watch collection watch uh but on the whole question of smart watches and smart dress watches to me i think if you are interested in a smart watch you are interested in something different than to me a smartwatch and a normal timepiece are totally different items i think a watch these days functionally it tells the time but i think it says a lot more about a person's character it's about aesthetics it's about history it's about tradition it's about an outfit it's about making memories in many ways um it's something that many of these people could have for a lifetime to give to a son or a daughter, um, something that an heirloom. Um, it's something to wear with certain outfits, but not others, particularly if you're a collector where a smartwatch by its very nature becomes obsolete with the next update. Um, it's not, it's much more about function, function, function. And some watches are incredibly functional. Um, but they, but really that's more about horological flexing, that actual, like, this can, you know, this has a timer. You know, you, no one buys a Rolex Daytona for the timing mechanism these days. Um, they're buying it for far more things. So, yeah, to me, if you're buying a smartwatch, and, and I would point out all the companies that tried to make smart dress watches, like Frederick Constant, have discontinued them because they didn't sell well. Um, so, yeah. They just become obsolete. So yeah, um, well, we spent more time on the watch question than I think the book questions, but that's not too surprising. Um, I do, Daniel, I defer to you on all things watches. Um, although Craig, I do have a fashion question for you. What is with your vendetta against Paisley? I wouldn't say it's a vendetta against Paisley. It's just one of the few things you and I disagree on. So I have fun pointing out that, uh, it's not my favorite. So stuffy. Um, well, we've been going for an hour, so I, we probably should wrap up. Um, a question I thought was good, a good note to end on. We were asked by um, Nicholas, given our expertise, uh, could we talk to the way in which Washington and Jackson experienced and dealt with epidemics throughout their lives and how does that relate to their leadership and probably to our own epidemic right now? Well, that's that's a that's a great question. And it's one that I've certainly been thinking about um, over the, the past week or, or more. And in Washington's day, the 
great fear was of smallpox, um, something that really isn't an, an issue today, showing how these things often often vary over time. But it was smallpox, and smallpox in uh, the 18th century during the Revolution was more deadly than the British Army, the British Navy, and Washington knew that. So when he took command of the Continental Army outside Boston, there had been a smallpox outbreak uh, in the area. And the question was, how do you protect the army from smallpox? Again, understandings of germ theory and whatnot are, are greatly different than today. But how do you protect the army? And Washington knew that he had to do something. And he wanted the army to be inoculated. Now, inoculations in the 18th century are very different from vaccinations today. You're actually dealing with a smaller bit of um, – a live, uh, you know, a live virus or pathogen or whatever you want to say, and it would be cut. You'd get a small incision and be inserted into the body, and you'd get a form. You'd get smallpox. The theory was it wouldn't be as bad as if you contracted it naturally and you'd recover faster, and then you'd develop an immunity. But the problem was you got smallpox, and there was no way to necessarily control how bad the reaction would be. Um, and so this is a risk. And it was something many people were afraid of. If you want to draw comparisons to the modern sort of anti-vaxxer uh, movement, what are the side effects? Well, in this case, the side effects were you got smallpox. Um, so many were very resistant um, and afraid of this. Uh, the, it had been developed in and around Boston in the early portions of the 18th century. Um, but it actually had roots in Africa and some of the, the knowledge um, of smallpox inoculation came from uh, enslaved Africans, African-Americans uh, in around the area. Um, Washington had actually contracted smallpox when he was with his brother Lawrence in Barbados. Uh, so he had developed an immunity and actually had, had pox scarring. Um, so Washington didn't require an inoculation. Maybe that made him more likely to suggest it for, for others. Um, but he did have the Continental Army inoculated. Um, and, and this long term allowed him to preserve the army in the field. Uh, funny story. Uh, he wanted Martha Washington, who accompanied uh, the army on virtually every campaign, uh, he wanted her to be inoculated and she refused. She was opposed to it. Uh, ultimately, she she did take the inoculation, get a very, very bad case of it, more than a tradi uh, traditional inoculation. So uh, what transpired behind closed doors um, will leave to speculation. For me, uh, Jackson himself faced his own epidemic, uh, the cholera epidemic, actually, and I'm working on a piece right now. And what's interesting for my own research is so much of this came down um, to religion, um, because basically, given medicine, what it was back then, and even in our own day, um, the way people respond to this is often prayer, turning to the divine for intervention and for relief. Um, and many presidents before Jackson, um, like jo George Washington and like John Adams, had instituted days of prayer and fasting um, to help, you know, assuage the wrath of God or inspire um, Christian communitarianism and piety in the hopes of alleviating um, the sicknesses. Jackson, interestingly, in a sort of Jeffersonian tradition, he said that he believed in the power of prayer, but he did not believe the Constitution permitted him to do so. And I think that's really interesting from our own time period, because as Americans, um, liberty-loving Americans that we are, we really prize our freedom, and we really prize um, our, own, our own sense of liberty. Um, and it's not like the president or anybody can really just enforce us like some dictatorial state to stay inside. Um, but Americans are choosing to do so and that the president at the moment is encouraging people to do so. 
um, out of the goodness of their hearts and their sense of civic duty to their fellow citizens. So I think that's a really interesting thing to think about that, um, you know, we can't enforce some of these things to help, you know, the social distancing, for example, but we can still believe in their effectiveness. So I think that's interesting. That and uh, Trump himself, I think, did something recently. Um, well, well, well. Y- uh, he just wrote. He just had, Trump himself. You know, I know you've written on the the Andrew Jackson, you know, connections or lack thereof with President Trump, and he just declared a a day of national prayer on on Sunday. So, how does that compare uh, to what Jackson did or did not do? Oh, it's interesting because it's like another way in which Jackson is not similar to Trump and Trump is not similar to Jackson. So, you know, that's another feather in that cap. But it's, well, the thing I find most interesting, and I'm right, I, I think I'm going to write about this. Um, I need to pull my rear into gear and get this done. Uh, is that where most of these days of prayer were so focused on only Christians and particularly Protestants, Trump's you know, even though Trump's had a lot of normative Christian language, there were appeals to other religious groups. And one of the reasons why people didn't like days of prayer and fasting in the early Republic is because it excluded or discriminated or created this image of um, hegemony of a Protestant hegemony. Um, So it's interesting that when Trump instituted this day of prayer, he did appeal for Muslims and Hindus and for Jews and Catholics to partake in asking their respected superhuman powers to seek aid and counsel and relief. So, you know, it's a very, we're heading into an era of very different days of prayer, much more multi-faith. So I think that's, that's an interesting turn. Um, I think, oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, no. Go ahead. Keep going. Sorry. No, no. You go. You go. No, I was just, I was just thinking about you. one of the, the terms you mentioned was sort of this common good. And I think that's something Washington really played on as well with inoculating the Continental Army, the idea that this was best for the army and society as a whole. Um, so I think Washington be very today would be very interested in some of the the news coming out about potential new vaccines or potential um, new cures. I mean, I think they just saw news that there may be a, a repurposed drug in Australia that could be used. I think this is something he would have been very interested in, and and very likely uh, uh, to use uh on on a larger scale um i do think it would have helped had he already contracted uh covid19 built up his immunity and did not have to take the inoculation himself i forgot though i was asked by another uh twitter follower who would i cast as andrew jackson in a movie i forgot about that um so there's meant to be a mini series based on american lion where Sean Penn is going to play Jackson. And ever since Penn has been cast, I kind of can't get rid of that image of Penn as Jackson. Um, And I think he would do a good job. The thing that's tricky is that Jackson was in his 60s when he took up the presidency. Um, But I've been thinking about it some more. And like, if I... um, Someone pointed out to me Alan Rickman would would have been an interesting choice. He kind of has the look, but he's too big. Jackson was like paper thin. He was so skinny. So you yeah, was like, what was he like? One hundred and forty pounds and like six foot, six foot one, something like that. Uh, six, yeah, six one. So yeah, he like he's thin as a rail. Um, so so he's in his sixties. He's six one and he's skinny. So it's it's hard to pick someone like that. You know, maybe James Cromwell would have been good a few years ago, but he's too old now for a sort of Jackson in the White House. So do you have any other... I, I mean, I would see Michael Fassbender in anything, but he's too young right now. Like, I, I'm just thinking if you need someone to lose weight and become skeletal, uh, Christian Bale's always a good pick. Um, yeah. But, um, but uh, I, I we, there was a, a lookalike thread on Twitter maybe about a year ago and someone posted Jackson and James Woods and I never thought about it before, but they actually look very similar. Again, um, would, would you have James Woods playing a young Andrew Jackson? Probably not right now, but it's an older one. I could see it. How old? So James Woods is 72. 
I mean, that would work. Although James Woods, is, his acting career is sadly over at this point. I'm just, if we're just going for straight looks, yeah, um, I think he's viable. Um, yeah, who would we cut? Who would be Henry Clay and John Quincy? Atlet? Those are the questions that are tough. Well, I, Anthony Hopkins played him in Amistad, and he was great. So that's who I see for 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 John Quincy Adams. Uh, too old at that point. Oh well, yeah. Um, Henry Henry Clay. Uh, I, I don't. You know, you know, you. I. This is completely random, but. Um, you know a Hollywood lookalike who would be interesting for a Jimmy Carter movie? Who? Steve Buscemi. Yeah, why not? Yeah, I, I've, once you see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> I, I can't say I've looked. I say yeah, and I, I've been trying to think. Um, oh, I saw. Uh, I saw another. Uh, uh, oh, who plays Monk? Tony. Um, oh, what's Shalou. his? Should yeah, we... him as Nixon would be you. Again, another Anthony Hopkins role. Yes, yes, uh, Roger Stone's uh, Nixon movie. Anyway, we're rambling now. Uh, well, Craig, thank you so much for joining me for this uh, off-the-cuff um, shooting from the hip, uh, Aja Jackson. Uh, thank you for coming on. I, I hope you and the family stay safe. And uh, to all the listeners out there, I hope you stay safe, keep quarantined, and um, hopefully the podcast starts up regular again. If you like this, let us know on Twitter. Send us emails. Let us know that you enjoyed this. Thanks for having me on to be a seat filler. Uh, can't wait for the returning uh, lineup and I hope everyone stays safe and enjoys uh, some time reading history books, uh, watching historical movies and playing historical video games. All right. Stay safe, everyone. Catch you later. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.